0: Welcome to the MI Market News Podcast. I'm Greg Quinn in Ottawa. With me today is Tyler Meredith, founding partner of Meredith Boston Cool Policy Advisors. He's also served in leading roles advising Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his finance ministers Bill Morneau and Chrystia Freeland. Uh, Tyler, uh, welcome aboard. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Tyler, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Trudeau has won three elections on the back of some substantial economic pledges, you know, uh, talking about... Um, maybe running a deficit when other parties were calling for balancing the books, uh, a national child care policy, and more recently, uh, a very muscular industrial policy. You know, you know, at the same time, the liberals had dedicated a, a long term plan with maybe 80 billion dollars over a decade for housing. Does the liberal government need to come up with another kind of big bang plan for housing if it if it wants to be you know successful with voters now and into the next
1: election? I think it does. um, But let's unpack that a little bit. So um, I think the first thing is that if it wants to be successful politically, absolutely, it's going to have to at least draw the issue to uh, take the issue to a draw with the conservatives, because I think it's been clear for the last number of months that this has actually become An area where the Conservatives have moved to an advantage, which had previously been an area of advantage for the Liberals, um, in part because of what you described earlier about the National Housing Strategy. And I think it's important to underline that this government has invested a lot and done a lot to create the National Housing Strategy, which, by contrast... You know, if you think about the government that Mr. Polyev was was a part of when when uh, Mr. Harper was prime minister, uh, the federal government very actively resisted having a national housing strategy because they said at the time it's not the federal government's role to have a national housing strategy. And we were on a path to have the federal government kind of uh, allow certainly the subsidies that the federal government supports to uh, rent-assisted housing to just expire, to be on a path to expire. And Mr. Trudeau has has reversed that and reversed that in a big way. But because of what's happened with inflation and because of what's happened with housing prices, particularly as they have oscillated because of limited supply um, in, to a certain extent, but to a limited extent, the impact from, from immigration, and also just because um, the housing market suffered from a lot of uh, pent-up demand while we were all in lockdown this has become a real um metaphor issue of middle class success and and so the the government it at least has to be seen to be on top of this in a way that looks new and uh, i think appreciates that 2023 is a very different time than when the national housing strategy was delivered in 2017 and i think if they don't get a handle of this and they don't show that they are they are in a, are in a place to be able to provide bold and new thinking um, I think they are going to have difficulty in the next election. And and part of that is because voters decide what are the issues that politicians have to respond to. And I think it's been very clear that this is an issue that people want to see more from the federal government on. And something that the government has also, with the cabinet shuffle, uh, with the new minister of housing, indicated that it too understands. It's really to be seen what will come in the fall um, in terms of the actual policy agenda. The federal housing agency, CMHC, has, has said we need millions of new
0: housing units in the, in the next decade. And they, they've also said that this requires every level of government to get on board, and and, the, and private industry. It's no one arm of Canadian society can fix it. But even if everything comes together, it's a it's a very difficult challenge to meet what what they say is needed to make housing affordable for all Canadians. That makes it sound like it would be very challenging for any government, not only to come up with something that's big enough to get the job done, but to also Reap the political rewards in a, in a time frame that politicians usually work in. For example, even if if you had the perfect plan today to build millions of houses, it would take many years to get them all under construction and people moved in. Isn't this a pretty tall order for
1: any government to to get get a hold of? Oh, absolutely, and and I think. The, the the critical point that you said, which I, w- I think we should underline, is that this is actually a problem for every government in Canada. Right? It's a it's a problem at the municipal level, where municipal leaders have become, to a certain extent, they've had a target painted on their back. Um, provinces are who are responsible for cities and and municipalities um, have to do things um, in order to uh, um, set the you know the ground rules on planning and and zoning that 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 probably requires the scale of change needed. And then the federal government often who can bring along cash but has some has some other tools like immigration, um uh financial sector policy uh and even things like the national building code. Um it you know all, everyone needs to be thinking about what are the tools that they can deploy that will that will be pointed at how to solve this problem. And I think it's been fair to say that both across governments and even within governments. We're not necessarily doing everything we could to be trying to solve this problem. In fact, governments within themselves are doing things that are counter to those objectives, right? So at the same time as the federal government is trying to build more housing and it has committed, like provinces, it's committed to the goal of wanting to double or triple the rate of of housing construction. We also have CMHC raising um, raising the, the 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 mortgage insurance rates on, on a number of um, multiplex projects, right? And they're doing that in part because of tax changes. And part of that is because we've looked at tax policy and isolation of mortgage insurance policy and isolation of housing policy. And so I think number one is every single government has to look within their own jurisdiction. What are the different tools that we have that touch housing? How can we get all of those tools pointed in the direction of how to support more housing? And then how can we work together across levels of government in order to look at what is the amount of um, uh, fiscal support that's needed in order to speed up construction? What are the things that we could do in terms of zoning and planning that will make it easier Easier and faster to build. What are the things that we need to do in terms of uh, housing approvals, so that that process, which in some cases can take many years from the time at which a project is being conceived to when it goes to financing, how to speed that up? And then, what are the what what's the labor and talent input that we need in order to make those projects happen? Because a lot of what happens with a project today is actually very similar to the way housing was built uh, 40 or 50 years ago it's not as capital intensive as you know we've seen um, other industries and other manufactured goods be transformed there's a long list of of ideas
0: that that you've you've seen and have been batted around if there was a a phone call to one of us from a big leader saying i need i need one idea that would really change this, is is there
1: one of all the ideas out there that you think could be most helpful on housing Well, I think the, the very first thing that we should do is we should actually look at whether we should hold a Council of the Federation meeting on housing. And the reason I say that is because to the point I made earlier, I think we all have different things that different levels of government are trying to pursue on the same objective, but they're not very well coordinated, right? So the province of Ontario says... Like the federal government, we too want to build 1.5 million new homes in Ontario over the next decade. Yet they're nowhere close to meeting that target. And they're nowhere close to meeting that target because they haven't pushed as aggressively as they should on things like uh, zoning changes, right? And the federal government at the same time is investing a lot of money targeted on the same municipalities. Uh, using its infrastructure dollars. And we should be thinking about how those two tools can work together in terms of planning, in terms of transit and infrastructure, and in terms of fiscal support for municipalities, right? And so we're, we're not going to, have- be as effective as we can be if we don't actually get all the players around the table. And I think we, we need to stop this kind of this this blaming that happens between levels of government on a lot of things, but particularly right now on an issue as acute as housing. And part of that, I think, is about just setting the table of saying there is a there is a degree of leadership that is required here by all levels of government. And that this is going to take, as you say, this is going to take 10 years, right? This is not something that we can magically solve tomorrow. In fact, if we tried to solve it tomorrow, we'd actually probably make the problem worse because we would we would be concentrating all of this activity on a limited amount of talent and goods to be able to 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 to, to build at a faster rate than we've not ever able, been able to achieve. And so, you know, to avoid that separate inflationary spike, we also have to think about these things as planned over a long horizon. And that's only going to happen if we if we bring everyone around the table. A lot of, a lot of uh, my listeners, I think, are out, outside
0: the country. I just wondered if we could um, clarify here. Would you say this is maybe a big issue or a troubling issue? You know, there's, there's an election that has to be held by 2025, but it, it could come sooner. Is this issue around housing and maybe more generally affordability, cost of living
1: already shaping up to be the the ballot box issue? Well, we often don't know what the ballot question is until we're close to or in an election campaign. I think, you know, it's fair to say anyone like myself who's been in a campaign will tell you, you may go into a campaign thinking you know what the ballot question is, but things will change very quickly. So I, I I would be a bit cautious to say that this is the thing that people will vote on in 2024 if that's when we have an election or 2025 if that's when we have an election. But I think it's clear that to the extent that and this, you know, and this there's a lot of public opinion research to back this up. People tend to vote for leaders if they think that that leader understands their sets of issues and they understand the economic challenges at a personal level where households feel pinched financially. And if we think about the things that are pinching households financially right now, the cost of housing, whether it's because you are... Uh, a renter who's now having to pay two thousand dollars a year on average for a Canadian rental, or you're trying to get into as a first time home buyer into the housing market and you're facing an almost eight hundred thousand dollar average house price that's increased substantially over the last couple of years because of because of covid uh, or you're someone who even still owns a home but you have a mortgage and you've seen your mortgage costs soar right by more than thirty percent in the last year and if anyone's been on a variable rate way more than that. And so everyone, to a certain extent, unless you own your home with no debt, which is a a small subset of people at later stages of life, most people in Canada have an issue right now with the cost of housing. And so when you have issues like that, that are as broad based as a concern, and and they're not, you know, it's not any one government's fault, I think we should underline that. Those are the things that people are going to want to see their leaders respond to. And I would say right now, the, the public opinion research is not my opinion. I think there's a lot of uh data that that is out there that would suggest this that right now the government is struggling on that metric. And if they don't, if they can't at least bring it to a tie going into the next election, they will have some challenges. Speaking of boring costs, you know, in in a very
0: influential institution is is the Bank of Canada. They've raised interest rates 10 times now. And uh, you know, there have been some political attacks on on the Bank of Canada from the conservatives and and the NDP about these moves. Um, do you sense that the public shares that anger at at the central bank about these moves? And is that going to pressure any future government to
1: change the way the Bank of Canada does business? So this there's, it's interesting you ask this question, because I would say to you that one of the areas that has not been as as well or as appropriately studied in public opinion research as probably this moment would require, and it's probably not been very well studied because up until this point in the last couple of years, we've had a very kind of, predictable boring um, context for monetary policy right because inflation was pretty pretty steady over the last 20 some years uh more or less undershot two percent and and the mandate of the Bank of Canada was very clear so so we haven't this isn't actually an area where you could say that you fully understand public opinion in terms of how well do people distinguish the decisions of government versus the distinguished distinguish the decisions of the Bank of Canada. And what's interesting, and there's been some recent research done by Abacus Research on this, is that Canadians number one believe that interest rates in Canada, sorry, inflation in Canada is worse than uh, internationally, which is demonstrably not true. Canada has one of the lowest rates of inflation in the G seven, but they also don't necessarily believe that the government is entirely to blame for um, fiscal, the fiscal monetary trade off, which the opposition has tried to stoke as an issue. But they also don't necessarily believe that the Bank of Canada is doing a great job at it either. And so it's kind of a pox in all your houses to a certain extent is I think the way that you could sum up the public mood. But I would just say this is an area where if I were a pollster, I think we need a lot more public opinion research done because I actually think this is what matters even to how we think about monetary policy. Not because I think monetary policy should be driven by the whim of a poll, but I think If you think about markets, right, which are entirely constructs of millions of consumers, we have to understand how do people, A, make decisions about their own buying behaviour and how those buying behaviour decisions are influenced by future expectations of inflation. So if, as I said earlier, Canadians believe that inflation is worse here in Canada than it is globally – are people making decisions today to buy more stuff because they think inflation is going to get worse? There's, there's some evidence, right, that, that long term inflation expectations have started to come down and come down in a way that is, I think, um, encouraging for the Bank of Canada. But we just we don't understand the psychology of the consumer well enough. And I just think this is an area where monetary policymakers need to do a lot more to understand things because their traditional models just haven't um, haven't been as effective in this moment.
0: Yes, uh, I I think it's fair to say some of those processes you're talking around public perceptions and and the inflation process of the public those those have not been studied in a lot a lot of detail. Uh, I'll maybe move a shoe onto an, another foot here. We've we've talked about the the government of the day, but we've also seen that that uh, Pierre Paul Irvin Conservatives, you know, as you've mentioned, have have made some attacks against the government and the Bank of Canada and, and stirred up a lot of dirt around the cost of living. I guess we can also recall that they have lost multiple elections now, and they've had a debate with themselves about, have we gone too far to the right, or did we in fact go too far to the center and, and mash up our, our message? You know, there's there's clear public concern about the, the cost of living, but their attacks have mostly followed what you might call a populist theme, talking about firing gatekeepers saying if cities don't build more, we'll simply take away federal dollars and funding. What kind of message do the Conservatives need to take? Is this an approach that will continue to work for them,
1: or will they have difficulty in any kind of election campaign? So I think it's important to remember that more often than not, governments defeat themselves as opposed to opposition parties get elected. Right. And so not not that not that there aren't moments in history where opposition leaders um, win the day on the basis of a new grand ideological vision that people buy into. But but often what happens in the cycles and these, you know, political administrations move in cycles um, is there, you know, you come in with a fresh new mandate, you do lots of stuff. Circumstances change, events intervene, people become fatigued over some period of time. And the challenge for governments in that context is in some ways to show that they can adapt and reinvent themselves. And so I think the challenge for the, for the liberals in the next election is less about Polyev. They, they obviously need to, to take advantage of some of the ammunition, frankly, that Polyev has given them on certain fronts but the but the key challenge is actually less about him and more about how can they re, how do they reinvent their themselves in terms of understanding the world and the ideas in 2024 or 2025, where Canadians will be and how they think about the challenges that they want to see governments respond to. So that's point number one. Point number two, I think, is to, to your to your characterization there about you know uh, what is the what is the most sustainable long term path for the conservative movement in Canada. Look, I, I'm not a conservative, so I'm not sure that that conservatives uh, would want to listen to me necessarily. But what I would say is that you know. Aaron O'Toole came the closest that anyone has to date in potentially knocking off Justin Trudeau in the last election. And Aaron O'Toole came relatively close at different moments of that campaign because he did a very effective job in a sense of jettisoning The the some of the hard right edges that had built up uh, in the course of the leadership campaign for him, but also just that exists naturally as a cleavage within the conservative party. And so, I mean, I would some I would argue, or even frankly, a dispassionate observer could argue that the path that the conservatives ought to to follow if they want to see success is to do more of that and not to shift to the far right. But but at the same time, I think you can you can arguably say that look if, if If naturally circumstances will run against the government, it doesn't matter whether you're in the center or in the center right. There's going to naturally be a constituency for change. I think that the challenge that Mr. Polyev is going to run into whenever the next election is, is how big is the universe of votes that he has access to? Right. And, And oftentimes in polls, we ask questions about would you, you know, Who will you vote for? That's what we often focus on as the ballot question. But the more important question is, and who would you consider voting for? Right. And typically, conservatives have always had a smaller voting universe than either the NDP sometimes or but certainly uh, than the liberals. And the success of a liberal party is being able to be a uh, accessible to a large universe of people. That's a larger universe, hopefully over time than the conservatives. If Mr. Polyev is not careful, and and I'm not saying that he hasn't been careful necessarily, but if he's not careful on that metric, um, he could find himself in a tough position in the next campaign. If if the Liberals are effective, as I think they they may be, in trying to frame him as uh, a risky choice,
0: one thing we know is that there will be another election. But at some point, and we don't know when Prime Minister Trudeau will. Will leave leave office. Um, you know, newspapers have often reported that uh, names with big business credentials, uh, like Christian Freeland or, or Mark Carney or Industry Minister Francois Philippe Champagne, could be leadership contenders. I guess I wondered for people who maybe sit outside of Canada, are people with those kinds of names and that kind of business and market experience good candidates to run as as political leaders, running a big party and appealing to all Canadians? Or does a does a perception of being tied to big business or an investment like that? could that potentially be a problem on main
1: street so so let me first start by saying i think justin trudeau is going to uh going to run as the leader of a liberal party the next election whenever that is i think he should i think he is the best asset that the liberal party has still today and and i look forward to seeing him in the next election in the fighting spirit that i know he will bring um but to to your question to, to your question about like you know, leaderships, let's, let's think about that even more in a more abstract sense than just this current, um, you know, this current context. So first thing I would say that I would say to anybody, if they were ever thinking about a leadership race, um, is oftentimes the person who wins in the leadership race is not the person who leads on the first ballot. That there are some times where that's true. And Polyev that was true of him in, in the leadership race that he won last year. But more often than not, it is the person who is the most, um, ac- again, the most accessible and the least offensive to the most number of people who wins. Right. And so um, I think that the critical, the critical asset that you, that anyone can bring to bear in a leadership race is how do they bring people together? And so in business, you have, you know, some business leaders have the experience and the skill of being able to bring people together either in management teams or as shareholders. And I just, so I think anyone who's coming from the business world and trying to transpose themselves into the into public life needs to think about how does that skill translate of how you build big coalitions over time. Second thing I would say is I don't think that the that the public has a either a negative or a positive view about business skills or experience in a way that maybe in the past they had a more positive view. I think today it's just rather neutral. Right. I, I think we evaluate our leaders largely on the basis of what are they offering and what, what, what are they offering for me and how does it help me? And and in some cases um, a business leader may have a good answer to that question. In other cases they may not. But I think that the thing that business leaders sometimes miss as a blind spot when they think about moving into the public life is that, is that public life is very different. Public policy is actually very complex. It's actually very nuanced. I I know that it's easy sometimes to look from afar and think, oh, you know, if only I were there, I could I could solve all these things. Public policy and public administration is very tough because you have a much broader set of stakeholder groups that you have to deal with and a much more complex set of interests to address. And it's not you're not simply driving to one single. metric of of profit performance at the bottom line, right? You also have to think about how you manage big teams, big organizations. And I've seen people from the business community come in who've been successful at that. And I've seen other people who've come in from the business community and, and had difficulty. And so I think anyone who's thinking about that in making that transition has to think about how do their skills apply in this different context and how can they tap into some of the skills in that context that they might not otherwise be thinking at the forefront of uh, their mind in, in their day-to-day life in, in business.
0: I like to wrap by asking people if there's a positive trend or surprise you're looking for the economy in the next year. And I guess I could already note that, you know, unemployment fell to record lows through the pandemic stimulus and yeah. uh, inflation has slowed quite a bit. But are, is there something
1: you see that makes you optimistic about the the economy or Canada in the next year? so i would I'd say a couple of things. one is um I actually think to a certain extent immigration is going to act as a very helpful buffer that will mean that at a nominal g d p level right because when we assess whether we are in a recession or not, it's often that classical definition of two quarters of negative growth, and so if you're using nominal g d p as your as your guide and quarter over quarter. A changes in nominal GDP as your guide. The fact that immigration remains high actually means that we may avoid a recession. And we should, even though I know there's been a lot of criticism of immigration because of, you know, what is its short-term effect on average GDP and what's it doing to the housing market? If we can avoid a recession, right? In the way that that when you get a recession, people then respond to it by, um, you know, in a quick reaction function in the corporate sector to lay people off and so forth and put up the drawbridges. bridges. Um, that actually will be helpful to avoiding scarring effects over time in in the labor market for people, right? It may mean that people stay in in jobs longer. Um, And if they stay in their job longer, even if there's not a lot of uh, or as robust of hiring as we've seen in the last number of years, um, it's just good for everybody, right? Uh, It's better to be employed um, with you know, lower level of demand growth than to not be employed and uh, be in a recession or to see anemic demand growth. So I just, I I think the potential for a soft landing to kind of happen almost by by accident in some way because of immigration is actually a thing that I think is a, it, would be, it would be a useful outcome. And it's not something we've talked about a
0: lot. I think that's a good place to, to wrap it up. This has been the M&I Market News podcast. Hope you like the show. Tell a friend if you did. Hope to be with you again soon. And Tyler, Thank you very much for being my guest. My pleasure. It was great.